Hello and a massive welcome back to Happy Place with me, Fern Cotton. Over the coming days and weeks, I'm going to be sharing some really special chats with you. They're the ones that happened live on stage at our gorgeous Happy Place festivals this summer. Today, it's Stephen Bartlett. The most amazing guiding signal of your life is genuinely how you, how you feel, but almost nobody listens to it. And the reason we don't listen to it is because of worry, is because, you know, feeling like you're not enough means that worry tends to take precedence over that voice. And then we choose the certain misery of our current situation over the uncertainty we'll inevitably have to encounter as we go in search of our happier place. Stephen founded social media marketing agency Social Chain from a bedroom in Manchester. By the time he was just 21 years old, it was one of the world's most influential social media companies. Now he's a speaker, investor, content creator, host of the Diary of a CEO podcast, which I'm sure you've probably heard of, and author of Happy Sexy Millionaire. Not only is he an incredibly accomplished entrepreneur, he's a brilliant philosophical thinker. We talked about being paralysed by decision-making and why there absolutely has to be failure on the way to success. Honestly, there are huge, huge words of wisdom in this chat. You lot in the audience clap throughout, which you'll hear, as well as the odd plane going overhead because we're on the old Heathrow flight path. And just to set the scene, by the way, the entire tent was packed full of gorgeous faces. And there were people spilling out onto the grass either side, sat on beanbags and deck chairs because everyone was so eager to hear from Stephen. He even spent literally hours, I think it was three or four hours, chatting to everybody at the Happy Place Festival, which we all hugely appreciated. He is just the kindest man. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com All right, here it is then. This is the show. I normally wear black. Did I nail the happy place You nailed it. (laughs) Look at the colour palette. (laughs) Pastel heaven. Oh, Stephen, um, I'm so grateful that you're here today. You are one of the busiest humans on the planet, um, and I really appreciate your support. So first of all, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's it's an honour, and it's so inspiring to see all of this. It's immense. Genuinely immense. Like, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. This is crazy. (laughs) This is crazy. It's it's really full on. I'm completely (laughs) at like max overwhelm the whole time. Um, And I'm chuffed. I'm chuffed that we're able to do this and come together to celebrate and to 
you know, learn stuff and learn stuff about ourselves. That's what I'm here for. I want to listen to all of the guests today and try out new things. And, and I know that a lot of people sat in this audience, Stephen, will be here because they're fans of your podcast. Maybe they've come intrigued to learn more about you. And I'm sure there'll be a, a large portion of people who have turned up today wanting to be successful, wanting to know what that magic is and how to do it. And as I said a moment ago, I'm, I'm so chuffed that you're, you've built this platform and that you're talking um, to that many people around success because I think culturally we've got it so wrong. And having read your book and knowing that, you know, you wrote this list of I want to do this, this, this and this and this when you were a kid. I want to do this, that and that. And you wrote this list thinking, when I've ticked all this off, I will then be happy. And you say in your book, verbatim, I couldn't have been more wrong. And it's controversial often to talk about that, but I'd love to know why. Why had you got it wrong? What had you misread about your dreams and desires in terms of success? Yeah, so I think for all of us, pretty much all of us, the things that invalidate us when we're younger end up being the things that we seek validation most from when we're older. So for me, and you know, when I take you right back to the start of my life, I, I, I was born in Africa. I moved to the UK when I was a baby. I moved to Devon in Cornwall. There's not a lot of people in Devon that look like me in 1992. Um, I was pretty much the only black person in an all-white school of about 1,500 kids. And then we lived in a middle-class area, but because of the financial hardship that my mum and my dad went through, the grass on our house was six foot high. The house was smashed to pieces. My brother's window on the, on, in his bedroom was smashed for about 10 years. And we attribute the value of something based on the context in which we see it. You'll know that if you've been to a restaurant and you see, I guess this is a vegetarian festival, so I'll say... You can you see, mention meat. Yeah. Be you, can say, you can say, like, beef. I see, don't know. <laughs> if you see three vegan steaks on a menu... <laughs> scientists. Scientists have proven that we'll actually, we'll actually make a mental story in our head where we'll think the most expensive one is a little bit bougie. The bottom one we'll avoid because there's a reason why it's low price. So we'll, we'll tend to go for the middle one. It's the same with TVs. And I was, in my street, in my context, perceiving myself to be lower value, which resulted in shame because of the context I was in. I was relaxing my hair to try and make it straight. I was doing everything I could to be white, to try and be rich. So I have this overarching shame growing up where I'm constantly, every day, I'd never had a friend come to my house in the 18 years that I lived there. I would, my friends didn't know where I lived because our house was smashed to pieces. So I was always lying. I was getting my dad to drop us as far from the school as we possibly could. My, my early years were all about shame and the shame centered on, the other point is that my parents were screaming at each other all the time about money. That was all the arguments in our house. So I grew up with that shame and obviously therefore the belief that it could be solved by this thing called money. And that was my insecurity, and it turned out to be a real big motivator for me. So at 18 years old, as you say, when I dropped out of university in Manchester, the front page in my diary, which I've uploaded to the internet, says, here are my goals before I'm 25. A Range Rover Sport will be my first car. I'll make a million pounds. I'll get a girlfriend and a six-pack. Four <laughs> goals in life. And off I went. And that's why my book is called Happy Sexy Millionaire, because I, I thought that would becoming the sexy millionaire would make me the happiest person on earth. And by 24, I had all those things. My first car was a Range Rover Sport. By 24, I, my net worth was in the tens of millions. I, I had worked on my body a little bit more. I was a very skinny little guy. So, and I had a, I had a girlfriend. So 
Um, and there was just this dreadful anticlimax. And I almost, I almost didn't know for, for about a six-month period when, when I'd achieved those things what life was about. You know, and this is, this is one of the lessons I've come to learn about having incompletable goals being the best goals in the world. So instead of having these, we've all been there, instead of, you know, putting our happiness at some point in the future or putting it, you know, next to a goal or an accomplishment or a monetary figure, I've tried to design my life around goals that I can never complete now. And that appreciates that all the happiness comes from forward motion towards meaningful challenges surrounded by people you love. So my, my, that's why I said I couldn't have been more wrong to have goals that were so insecure, so superficial and so ultimately em empty. Um, so I changed things around a little bit. I think it is controversial to talk about, but massively needed because we always feel like we're falling short when we're not meeting these goals. But I also think it's controversial because... You know, I think we're all guilty of this. We can look at other people in our lives, but we could look at other people in the public eye and say, well, it's all right for them. They've got this, that, and that sorted. You know, I, I could never feel happy because I haven't got this, this, and this. And we almost use it as an excuse so that we don't make changes. Or, and I'm not saying, you know, it hasn't got to be changes to move in that direction, but changes to our life because we know what we're doing isn't working. So I think it's a really loaded subject, and that's why I'm always so chuffed when you talk about it so openly, because you've been there, you've done it. And, and I think it's the same with... Um, I was doing a, a talk a moment ago in another area of the festival, and you know, talking about my nerves about today and my insecurity before I turned up and my worries and, and all of that sort of going on in my brain. And talking about how, you know, sat here now, we've got all these brilliant, lovely people who have kindly chosen to turn up. But I can't put all of this, uh, whether it's appreciation, support, in me. It's why rock stars walk off a stage and then go and get really drunk in a cliched way, because you can't... It's, you know, you can't put that in you. You've got to do that work yourself. You've got to find the self-compassion, the self-love, the self-acceptance, whatever it is. Outside, ex exterior stuff won't do it. Money, people, things, accolades. We still en masse assume it's going to get us to that point of I feel complete. But it doesn't. You, st you know, I don't feel any different to when I was starting out in TV, age 15, you know, living with my mum and dad who are here somewhere. I don't feel any different as a person. And I'm also aware that I've still got a ton of personal work to do and acceptance. And I think, you know, self-compassion, Dr. Olivia Reams was doing a talk on this earlier. Um, I still struggle with self-compassion. I still struggle with self-acceptance. It seems that you've done a lot of work since having that epiphany aged 25, 26, that you've had to walk towards that and find that self-compassion yourself. Yeah, I think at the heart of it is I, I didn't think I was enough. I think at the very core of me, I didn't think I was enough. And I thought that goals or financial gain or some kind of accomplishment would make me enough. I actually remember the day very clearly where a, 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 a woman came to our office and was doing a speech. And she said, she said to me, um, imagine you're already enough. You're already enough right now. With everything you have and everything you are, you're, you are already enough. And I remember being sat at the back thinking, nonsense. I remember thinking why I was really uncomfortable with it, because it almost robbed me of, of, of something. It robbed me of, I think, my psychological purpose, which was this pursuit I had. But really, that pursuit was insecurity. And I, I, I played around a lot with the idea that if I'm already enough, and this is, you know, if we all embrace that we are today already enough, does that kill our ambition? 
Does that stop us getting out of bed in the morning? If we're ready enough, then why do we need to strive anymore? But what it actually does, and I just had the words all wrong, because regardless of whether you achieve an amazing thing or you don't, your intrinsic value in here never changes. It never changes, no matter how much money you get. Your, your actual, one you is always going to be worth one you. And when you realize that, you realize that the word, this idea that we can be enough and we could ever be more, you can never be more. No matter if you get the Range Rover and the, the accomplishment, the gold medal, you'll never actually be more. One you is always worth one you. So what I came to learn was that real ambition, real ambition is you doing things for you. And so if I know that I'm enough, it means that I can get rid of this desire to have a Lamborghini and to have a, a gazillion followers and to be famous. I can get rid of all of that and I can focus inwardly on actually what do I want to do? I want to be a ballet dancer in Peru. So Niche. knowing you're enough, knowing you're enough doesn't kill ambition. It, it, it's the foundation for real ambition. Before you know you're enough, your life will be filled with fake ambitions to impress your mother, to, in, to please this person and that person. So knowing you're enough for me became this real foundation in me where I go, now I can live my life on my terms listening to my voice and doing things for me. Knowing you're enough, getting to that place where, and the truth is you all are. You all are enough. You're never going to be worth anything more than you are today. Those are just stories that are convincing you there's some kind of inadequacy because you've deferred your happiness behind some future goal or accomplishment or thing. You are actually enough. And when you get there, you don't have to write in your diary that you need a six-pack and a Range Rover Sport and a million pounds and then spend your life on this toxic hedonistic treadmill chasing it. You can actually go after the things that actually make you happy. Connection with your friends, you know? Doing things that help other people. Dancing. Not working in the city in that corporate job that's sucking the soul out of you. You can actually pursue yourself and that is the path to your happy place. Oh. There you go. Very good. Descriptive. Okay, that wraps up that podcast. Um, <laughs> what, do we, what do we do now for the next half hour? No, I'm, I'm so intrigued about your thoughts on ambition because it's still something that I, I, I struggle with decision-making big time. And it's because I'm not working from a place of I am already enough and I'm not working from a place of I know what I like. Sometimes I go, I don't know what I like. I need someone to tell me. Just tell me what I like. I've actually forgotten. And I think... Many of us feel like that, whether you're, I'm a parent, I, I find it I, like my brain is exploding all the time and I'm dealing with kids and juggling life or whether it's because of your job or you're caring for someone, whatever. I think you can get a bit lost. You know, what do I like? What do I want? Wh how do you find that? How do you discover what you want? Because you could be working in the city and knowing that you're hating it or, or any job or in a relationship that you hate, but you think... I don't know what the alternative, I don't know what I want and what I like. How do you start to cultivate that understanding of yourself? There's kind of two things that I thought about when you were talking about that. The first is, I have a hunch, I have a hunch that deep inside all of us, we actually know. But I think a lot of the times there's been all of these counter narratives. You know, my mum wanted me to go to university and become a doctor, for example. So I'd almost conflated that with what I wanted. I, I tend to believe that all of us have been given this sort of internal compass, which is driven by a signal called how do you feel, which is telling you what you want and where you should be and where you shouldn't be. But there are so many other narratives, usually externally driven, that we put ahead of that compass, that we put other signals we allow to dominate that. And I think when people ask me, you know, 
25 years I'd, but in my, by 25 years old I'd managed to achieve quite a lot of things is because I have been so good at unapologetically listening to how I feel, which meant uh, genuinely I stopped going to school because I just didn't like it. I went to university for one lecture and I left because I just didn't I like it. I pray my son is not in here. Well, Please, God, let Rex <laughs> not be in this tent. <laughs> I started a business at 18. I did it for two years. I raised investment. I quit out of the blue because I was done there. I started Social Chain. The business grew to make 600, 600 million a year this year. And I quit out of the blue because I was done. And the point there is the most amazing guiding signal of your life is genuinely how you, how you feel. But almost nobody listens to it. And the reason we don't listen to it is because of worry, is because you know, feeling like you're not enough means that worry tends to take precedence over that voice. And then we choose the certain misery of our current situation over the uncertainty we'll inevitably have to encounter as we go in search of our happier place. And this is honestly one of the, the, the difficult challenges people face is where you are is certain. And even if it's unhappy or not, it's, there's certainty there. And, and getting to a place where you are comfortable with uncertainty, with the lights being off, that precipice you have to travel through to get to that place, I believe will be the single biggest predictor of your success professionally and personally. Do not overstay your welcome in situations that are not serving you. And you don't, like, life never, you know, I, um, Obama had the pleasure of speaking on stage with him in Brazil, and he said something really amazing about Osama bin Laden, which your, your, your point opened up about decision-making, which is how you make those decisions. Perfect decisions only ever exist in hindsight, right? You can only ever look back and decide whether it was a good decision or a bad decision. What he said was, when he was deciding whether to go get Osama bin Laden in that compound in Pakistan, they didn't have all the evidence. They didn't know if Osama bin Laden was there. There was also some worry and uncertainty whether the, the, the two helicopters that went in would be shot down. He said you have to get to, you have to get to be the type of person that can get to 51% certainty on a decision and then make it knowing that you made that decision with the information you had and be at peace with that. Because perfect decisions only exist in hindsight. So the closer you can get to that 50 number, some people, they need 99% certainty. It will never happen. You will procrastinate your life away. Get to 60% certainty on your decisions. Trust yourself and make the decision. Because i tell you what, business has taught me this, and working with CEOs of the biggest brands in the world has taught me this. The danger isn't making a bad decision. The danger is wasting years of your life making no decision. And having worked with big brands, you know, I can, there's two big fashion brands that I worked with. Same family, same group. One of them... When we came to them with an idea, okay, um, Snapchat's just launched, TikTok's just launched, we think we should move on it. Two different CEOs of the business, same family. One of them would go, let's do it today, let's move. We have 51% conviction, let's go. Sometimes it wouldn't work, but the other brand would spend nine months deliberating, then go for it and find out it wouldn't work. Brand number one over here, they'd found out in a week, so they were on to the next thing. I watched this other brand, which was about 500 million in revenue behind this one, become the UK's biggest fashion brand. And this one slowly falter. It was because of procrastination. It was because of this, this deep need to get to 99% certainty on decisions. The biggest risk is making no decision. The biggest risk is procrastination, not failure. And that's what I've come to learn. Mm. Mm. It's, it's, so, it's so cool because, you know, you hit the nail on the head with the uncertainty thing. We're so deeply uncomfortable with it, like not knowing. 
we think we have to know everything and how it's going to turn out. And I'm sure most people in here, like me, would feel like they're a bit of a control freak. Like, I need to know that this is all going to be the way I want it to be in, like, tiny, tiny parts of my life. But then when you do lean into that uncertainty, I actually feel so excited when I do that. And I messaged you last week because... When I was rereading your book in preparation for today, because I'm ever so studious, I, um, I was, when I was reading the section again on quitting, I was literally like vibrating with excitement. I love that feeling of, there's something new. What is it? And I had this exact situation. I mean, not on the scale that you did when you left your company after building it to that extent. But I left, I was doing Radio 1 for 10 years, the live lounge, and I just had a feeling that I needed to do something different. And I wasn't deeply unhappy. There were things that I wanted to change in my life, but I just thought this feels, and I had nothing to fall back on. Like I, there was, I didn't have any other work. There was no like future TV thing. There was nothing. And I had a really uncomfortable six months of going to bed at night and going, I have made the worst decision ever and thinking about, you know, the live lounge happening without me and how, how would I cope with that? And I'm never, I'm going to be dropped from the music industry and all these huge worries. And I sat with that uncertainty and it was horrible at points and I really thought I'd messed everything up. But then, I, you know, all of this mad Look stuff. This. I know. You nailed mad. it. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that is wild to me. But I have to remind myself of moments like that where this stuff can happen in that huge discomfort. And I wonder if you've got any coping mechanisms for when you're in that discomfort, and it can be awful. It can be like, I want to crawl out of my own skin, uncomfortable, especially when it's big life decisions, leaving a job, leaving a relationship, moving on from a toxic friendship, all of these things that are excruciating to let go of. How do you cope in those moments, cognitively, physically, emotionally? Yeah, so I think, I think we all have a cognitive bias so I can give you a bunch of words to explain how I do it but I have to appreciate that I have my own cognitive bias based on my own 29 years on this planet so it's it might sound oversimplified um, one of the things that I, I think I've been part of my bias is that I see the risk as the opposite thing to most people so when I left university I, and started my business and my business became big a lot of people would come up to me and say oh you're so you know you're, you're, that was so brave of you, that's so courageous. And I spent years trying to figure out why I, I just couldn't relate to this idea that I was courageous. And it's because to me, the risk was staying. The risk was staying in a situation that I knew was going to make me miserable, having to spend four years in university, then watching my friends who got these jobs they did not want and lived a life that they did not want. I'm a coward. I, I very quickly leave situations that my internal, that compass, which is how do I feel, says, no, this is not for you. And I'd much rather be in the, the uncertainty than certain misery. And as it relates to quitting, you know, I built this big business. We had 700 team members. I'm the CEO. We're going up, coming up to a very important moment. And I realized that this is no longer for me. I'm actually in Portugal at the time. And this is where I, I wrote the quitting framework in my book. I was trying to understand how in my life I've seemingly quit quite peacefully. As in, I, I haven't had that like resistance and that angst and then that worry that a lot of people have had. And so I tried to sketch out what's going on in my brain. And so my framework was like, are you thinking about quitting something? If the answer is yes, there's usually two reasons. And these two words are purposefully vague, right? So you can define them yourself. I'm thinking of quitting because it's hard or I'm thinking of quitting because it sucks. 
right? You can define how it sucks. And this can be in the context of your partner. I know you, a couple of you got your partners here, but it can be in oh, yeah, your relationship. So this is, <laughs> this is relationship there. No. Um, so if it's hard, let me give you an example of something that's hard. Maybe a marathon or, you know, whatever. I don't quit things just because they're hard. The next question I ask if something's hard and I'm thinking about quitting is, is the rewards on offer worth the hardship? Like a marathon, you're in the 23rd mile, you're raising money for charity, it really, it's really, really hard, but it's worth it, then don't quit. If it's hard, but the rewards on offer aren't worth it, quit. That's logic. No one wants meaningless struggle in their lives. Meaningless struggle is the worst type of struggle. When people, and in, in Daniel Pink's done a, a lot of studies on the psychology of motivation, that's when people get burnt out when their struggle is meaningless, and also when it's involuntary. So let's go around the other side. Are you thinking of quitting because something sucks? If you're thinking of quitting because something sucks, the next question becomes, is the effort it would take to make it not suck worth the rewards on offer? Marriage counseling, you know. <laughs> going and having those tough conversations with your board of directors like I did, right? If it's not, quit. If it is, then go and do the work. Go and try and rectify the situation. Go put the work in to change it. Um, if it sucks and the effort it would make to make it not suck, it's not worth it, then quit. And then I find myself in a situation at Social Chain where I, try, I couldn't, there's two branches there, I couldn't make it not suck anymore. And so I was done. And for me, having a framework in which I make my quitting decisions allows me to know, like Obama said, that I did the best I could with the information I had and how I felt. Um, and I, I've just, I've, I've built evidence over my life that, the, as I said earlier, the biggest risk is... Um, is the certain misery of my current situation. I just, I mean, you know, doing this podcast as you've done, you've, you've seen people get to that moment in their life, that crossroads, and yours was the, the most beautiful example. I'll never forget what you were saying. You know, I, I've talked about it on stage many, many times. You're in that situation. Some, your body's reacting. Your body's saying, Fern, this is not it. Mm -hmm. You were talking to me about panic attacks and all of those things when you came on my podcast. Your body almost knows before you. It does. It does, and, and there's no denying that one because you can't stop it you know I still do get panic attacks it's more of a kind of hangover because I'm not doing that stuff so much that I used to but I can still get that feeling come up and you go wow either I've still got more work to do or I need to make more changes and I think can I ask a question yeah you, you know when you were going through that period of uh, you knew something was wrong you knew are you switching this interview yeah. <laughs> no, I'm genuinely I'm genuinely curious the physical, the physical symptoms of how you felt, how long did they come before you made the decision? Um, so, well, I'll give you an example, right? Last night, I'm lying in bed. I can't sleep because this is all going on. Like, oh, my God, this is happening. And I'm getting that adrenaline surge come up like, oh, no, no, I can't do it. And it's not really about this because I want to do this. This is worth the effort, the work, whatever. I want this to happen. I want everybody to gather together and be here. There's not a single bit of me that doesn't want to do it. But I, this is where it gets complicated because I've got a hangover from old stuff, but the reaction's the same. I think that's where you have to put the work in, isn't it? To go, right, I don't need to hold on to this stuff anymore and the fear and the worry that people are going to judge me or whatever it might be. And I can let go. So I've still got more work to do on that one. But I think when I was in situations that I shouldn't have been in and I stayed stuck, I'd be having those adrenaline surges and those panics like all through the day, all through the night, you know, because it was my body going, get out, like change, make a change. But I think so interesting hearing you talk because when you get stuck, I think the only reason you get stuck is because of low self-worth. 
And we've probably all at one point dealt with that or are dealing with it. We don't believe we deserve any better. We think this is just how life is. I'm meant to be struggling. I'm meant to be going through this. It is hard and I hate it, but this is just my life. And I think that's the really tricky bit for all of us. And it's not our fault because on a cultural level, we are bombarded with advertising, whatever's going on social media, telling us that we're not getting it right or that we're lacking or that other people are doing it better, someone else has got a better life than you. So it's a, it's a lot to rally against in terms of what's been thrown at us and discovering our own self-worth and knowing that we are all enough. I don't ever believe, I think, and this is a, maybe a bit controversial, but for some people they might find it quite liberating. I don't believe that much of our trauma ever goes and I think that should be liberating because um, the key for me is becoming self-aware of the, the thoughts, the stories, the traumas that we've been through and putting them out in front of us. So instead of it being a puppet master in behind the control room, controlling us you know, without us realizing, put it out in front of us so we know it's there. We understand the triggers, we understand the impacts it has and those kinds of things. And then we diminish the power it has over our decision-making with new evidence. And that kind of leads me to my next point, which was pretty much all of our beliefs about ourselves are based on some kind of evidence, whether it's correct or incorrect, from our subjective experience, from, from the playground, from something someone said when you were younger, sitting there with all these guests who have achieved amazing things, often driven by insecurities, I don't think I've ever seen one guest who has overcome completely, to zero percent, overcome that insecurity or that negative story. Um, and on that point of evidence, you know, I, I used to think once upon a time that you could look in the mirror and say to yourself, ah, believe in yourself. You're amazing. You're going to be a millionaire. Because I read books and they all said, you know, you just look in front of the mirror, you say these nice things, and then it happens, right? But think about all your beliefs. And, and this is a, an interesting thought exercise. Have you chosen any of your beliefs? Do you actually think you've chosen any of your beliefs? I could, I've got a way of testing that. If I got someone you loved and I held them at gunpoint and I said, I'm going to pull this trigger if you don't believe that I'm Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Every, everything you love is on the line and you still can't choose to be genuinely believe that. You could lie, but you genuinely couldn't change that belief. So do you think you're actually choosing any of your beliefs? Do you think you could just stand in front of a mirror and just recite some nice things and that would actually fundamentally change some of these stubborn childhood beliefs? It's based on evidence. If I got this, this here and I turned this water into wine and then I started levitating... Oh, please. That becomes a little bit more compelling as evidence that you might think, fuck, I think he is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so that should tell you something about the, the stubborn beliefs you're looking to change in your own life. If they are evidence-based and it's not something you're choosing to believe or not, then the, the cure must be going and finding a way to get some new evidence. And for me, this has meant in my life, you know, when my first talk on stage, I was 14 years old, I've got this piece of paper, I'm shaking and I can't read it because I'm shaking so much that I just make up the words in front of these 15 people that are in front of me. 15 years of repetitions, putting myself on the cusp of my zone of comfort, where I can get, which I call my growth zone, where I can build new evidence about myself and my capabilities, has led me to be confident now speaking in front of this gazillion people. And I would, I would, I believe now, and I might change in a couple of years because my thought process is ever evolving. I believe that our most stubbornly held beliefs that are based on subjective, false, or incorrect evidence, the way we move them is by building a new self story, new evidence. And that, that's on the zone of your, that's on the cusp of your zone of comfort. Mm. Just one step outside of the zone of comfort. In your job, in your career, you know, in your relationships. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. 
This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com So when we're looking at um, make, I just want to go back to the making these changes because there'll be, I'm sure everybody here will have a decision, big or or small, that they need to just sit with and and get to that gut feeling of, I don't want to suffer anymore or this is too hard and it's you know thankless, whatever it might be. Our, one of our biggest barriers stopping us is not just the uncertainty; it's the horrible thought that we might fail and that's only got worse on a societal level in the last I think five years that has ramped up of you can't do this you did that I blame you you got it wrong and obviously cancel culture and all the obvious stuff that comes from there that's deeply unhealthy how do we move past that you know like I've got to a point where I've made so many mistakes if I just look at my career so many horrendous ones and and small ones that have gone under the radar and I'll probably make loads more going forwards which terrifies me but not enough to stop me because I know it's an inevitable outcome yeah but none of us like that we don't want to go wrong and you talk about this in your book in depth where you had an extremely tough period or it was on a day like this one awful day for you where everything seemingly went wrong and you were losing clients but you managed to move through that quite calmly again, it seems. What have you learned from failure and, and how do you use it in moving forward now? Yeah, I, th- I think I would, I'm going to guess that the more unsuccessful you are, and I use that word not in a professional sense, just in the goals you're trying to strive for, the least you failed. Because I swear to you I failed more than everyone I know over and over again. If you think about it, like I failed in school, I got kicked out of school. Failed in university, lasted a day. My first startup failed, completely failed. I then failed as a CEO in my second business. I fail every single day. What we're trying to do is fail faster than everybody. And in all of my companies, I've got some of my team here today, it's about the speed of failure. As I said earlier, waiting nine or 10 or five years or 10 years to then fail is the risk. Staying is the risk. So the speed in which we fail is the, is the, most, is the most important thing for me. Um, as it relates to that particular day you referenced in my book where, where our company got hacked and all of our clients got these very personalized, abusive emails that were designed to make it look they weren't, like we were slagging them off and that it was meant to be sent to um, someone else, but it accidentally tagged in the, managing, the, the CMO of... The I literally end. feel sick. Like, oh, I can't. God. It was mad. mad. Driving to work oh. at 6 a.m., I'm 22 years old, 23 years old, and I'm looking at my phone, and the investment deal we're about to close, the investor sends an email and it says... I'm, I'm assuming you weren't meant to send that to us. And it's slagging him off personally, his I, personal I, appearance. Nightmare. I'm thinking it's from my business partner's email. We're go, and the worst part is we're going to a team building day at paintballing. <laughs> so everyone's waiting, Perfect. man. And we're driving and I'm thinking, what? And then I get, you can see another email pop down and it's one of our biggest client. And they're going, um, that's very interesting to know. Um, uh, and basically canceling the retainer we have with them. Okay, what's so we pull over and we go through and at 3 a.m. someone's hacked our emails in the ascendance of our business, they've sent very personalized abuse to every single one of our clients, literally researched what they look like, made it seem that my business partner was trying to email my PA about them, slagging them off, and accidentally copied them in. 
And that day, you know, 23, I get to paint, paintballing. I say to everybody, right, everybody, jump back in your cars. We're going back to the office. <laughs> Go back. To, but the point, the real lesson that I learned on that day and why I and my business partner will attest to this was very calm on that day as calm as I am today, was because one of the things that's helped me to survive is this real, just, again, cognitive bias to only focusing on what, what I can control. I could do nothing about what had happened. People ask me all the time, did you ever find, find out who it was? I don't care. They're living I a miserable little life somewhere, aren't they? On the there. day, on the day, I, did, I didn't care. And we're years later now, I still don't care. Because I can do, if I try and... Uh, invest energy in things I can't control. You only ever get worry, anxiety, you get overwhelmed. My thing is like, what can I do today? What I can do today is start improving our cybersecurity. I can start calling every single one of these people that's been emailed. I can make sure our team are okay. Those are all the things I can do. So, and that for me is really empowering to just focus on the controllables. I see this in business. When a room is on fire, this is a metaphor, not actually when a room is on fire, you get a variety of different types of people. One type of person would say, the room is on fire, oh my God, the room is on fire, oh my God, the room is on fire, the room is on fire, oh my God, the room is on fire. I've got like a fire extinguisher, <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm panicking, I've yeah, gone yeah. really hot. Not productive for getting out of the room and not burning to death, but also not productive for the mind. Another type of person will be clear that the room is on fire. We all know the room is on fire, we can feel it. It's hot in here. Let's focus every ounce of our mental energy on figuring out how we get out of this room. And that, for me, is a nicer place to live in my mind, and it's, a, it's, more, it's more conducive with successful outcomes. So in the, the, the greatest chaoses I've been through in business, and you'll know, you just, they come out of nowhere every day, especially when you have 700 team members, you've got police calling you one day, this has happened, this is every single day. My thing every day was just, I'm gonna do my best today. How do you, so, you know, if you've got, like, the room is on fire, and, yeah. and you've got people sending you emails saying, <laughs> why have you, whatever it is, whatever drama, how have you stopped any of that from heading back in your direction? What I mean is, if I've got a disaster going on or someone's called me out for something or they don't like something I've done, I will use it as ammo against myself. I don't know if that's my personality or it's through years of the job that I do, but I go, oh my God, I am awful. All the things I thought about myself are true. I'm a terrible yeah. person. I didn't get that right. I'm stupid. Like All my insecurities flare up and I don't feel I've got that much control over that. I've obviously got a lot more than I'm imagining, but how do you stop from turning that exterior, whether it's uh, abuse or, or people calling you out for things, how do you stop from turning that on you? I have, I have, there's been moments where I've struggled with it and I, I don't want to ever give anyone the, the perception that I'm, that I'm perfect in that regard because I'm not. Um, what I think is happening in that case you've described is it's serving as as I said earlier, it's serving as reinforcing evidence of yep. inadequacy that you might have believed. So we talked about that we all have this set of evidence about ourselves and our beliefs. Someone's pouring uh, gasoline or petrol on one of those sets of it, false evidence about yourself and it's flaring up. Um, for me, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to not have too many deeply held insecurities that um, people can pour gasoline on. But I don't know. The other thing is just this general, general belief, which I've I've always held front of my mind that I'm going to die. And I know, I know that sounds very morbid, but for me, I don't, I don't deeply believe that humans realize that anything can be infinite or finite. I don't Ugh. necessarily think we truly embrace this idea that this life is finite. And this is why I have a, a big sand timer on, my, on the shelf behind me. I talk about sand timers in my book because for me, that allows me to focus more on what's, what actually... When time is finite, and I, I don't know how many 
grains of sand I have left. It means that every grain of sand I'm expending is so incredibly much more important. I talk about this in the book as well, this idea of our time being poker chips. Every day you wake up, you get 24 chips. Nine of them you've spent sleeping. My maths isn't great, so I'm going to hazard nine <laughs> takeaway 24. I had like four <laughs> chips last yeah. night. Spend 10 sleeping. That's an easier yeah. number to subtract. Um, you then have 14 left in a day. And like, that's what you have every day. That's the center point of your influence. It's, it's, it's going to result in how strong your relationships are, how successful you are in business, how well your festival goes, those 14 chips you get to spend. And so I try, whenever I find myself in a situation where I'm being consumed by pettiness, I try and remember, turn the sand timer over. Steve, you're on a clock here. And all of this stuff doesn't matter. It's the retrospective clarity that Brony Ware found when she interviewed people on their, on their deathbed the biggest regret of the dying, all of them centered around wasting their time on things yeah. that were, were, were petty and, and beyond them. And it's, it's easy to say in words. It's difficult in the moment. Finding ways to reach your own sense of perspective, I think, is the answer. And, um, and coming back to what really matters. The truth is we're not meant to live in this world, a world designed like this as no. humans. We're not meant to have a context of potentially four billion people with Twitter egg emojis that can talk about our hair and nails. Like, we're not meant to... We're meant to live in tribes. We're meant to live in small groups. And the context of a tribe is people that love you. They're your family. That's the way our brain is orientated. So this new world, some practical advice here, is, is unhuman. So we need to take control of it. I've muted everything on, it, on my phone. 95% of the people I follow, other than Fern, Thank are you. muted. <laughs> so, because you know if you unfollow them... You know, I don't want that. So I've muted 95% of the people I God, follow. God, I need to do this. You can take action against the social platforms. On Twitter, yeah. if you tweet me and you don't have a verified email, you don't have a display picture and a few other things, I don't even see the tweet. So, you know, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm fighting back yeah, against... Yeah, I need to do this. I remember Rhonda Byrne saying when she came on the podcast, when she was really wanting to manifest a specific outcome, she would quite literally create a boundary around herself of, I won't answer the phone when this person calls. I'm not going to look on this website about what's going on there. And she just closed it all down. And, you know, we could all sit there and go, oh, that's a bit mean. But that's normal. Like, you know, I, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. We didn't have any of this. And we still managed to meet up with people on time and, like, <laughs> make arrangements. And people still put on, like, festivals, Woodstock or Glastonbury back in the day without mobiles, social media. Phones. So we've totally normalised all this lunacy where we're just completely contactable. We think that every opinion is fact. That's the other dangerous thing. Like when we read something like... Oh my God, Kim Kardashian says this, this must be true. And it's like, oh my God, we need to filter all of this and be more boundaried about it for our own sanity. But that's not necessarily advertised, is it? But it's, I find it so interesting again, Stephen, you're talking about... Can I just say, Fen, this place yes, is the me. perfect example of exactly what we've just said. Because in, in my book, I talk about the, the journey back to human. And it's funny that our brains are reacting adversely to this world we live in, which we're not supposed to. We're not meant to have all this stimulation, all of this feedback, all of this, this busyness, etc. And all of the modern answers to, to solve that are exactly what you see here. When you go and, you know, when you, being out in nature, mm. the studies around in prisons where a prisoner is looking at a brick wall versus looking at a tree, their, their chance of depression changes by 30%. Moving your body, I know there's yoga tents here, not, not sitting there and allowing Uber Eats to give you your dinner, Eating stuff that goes in the ground, connecting with people. These are all the things that when we, psychologists think about like, you know, what you need to, as your medicine, these are all human things. It's like we strayed off from being a human. 
We, we, we ordered our food with glass screens. We date and connect with people using a glass screen. We sit there. We're more sedentary than ever before. Theresa May appointed a loneliness czar yeah. for the UK oh. because we have a loneliness problem here. The average American, uh, 15 years ago, when asked the question, how many people have you got you could turn to in a time of crisis? The average American said three. Now they say zero, the medium answer. So what we actually need to do is things like this, which is this journey back to what it is to be human. It's actually really simple, but we've overcomplicated it. It's like turn around and go back down the road. Mm. Go be in small groups, meaningful relationships, exercise, go out in nature, stop eating sugary crap and drugs and you know, all these kinds of things. And it will be remarkable, the change we'll see. Yeah, there's a, a great author, Narina Hertz, who um, I think we did an Instagram live together, and she sort of specialises in looking at the psychology around loneliness. And I was uh, horrified by some of the statistics that came out in her book about, again, this was more um, states-based, where you can hire someone that you hang out with to, like, hug. I mean, this is awful, that this is in our lifetime, that this is happening, and we are disconnecting on a very basic, basic level. And I wonder, now for you, Stephen, now your goals have changed and your ideas of happiness and what you're reaching for or not reaching for, you, you dismantled this whole you know, pre-existing process that you believed in, that, you, that most of us are sort of still trying to clamber up or work out where we sit in it. What, what makes you feel good? What makes you excited? I'm, I'm a bit of an excitement junkie. Sometimes more than, uh, you know, trying to cultivate happiness. I like that I'm going to quit something, what's new? I, I love that, oh, it, that excitement. What, what gets you going in that way? What makes you excited today? Um, I think, so, I, when I think about the, 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 the foundational things that make me excited and happy and feel motivated and driven, it's when I'm striving, striving, keyword, um, towards a meaningful goal, so something that I subjectively considered to be a meaningful thing to do, whether that's DJing now or whether it's, you know, my businesses or the podcast, I'm challenged. Again, I think um, it, if you think about crosswords and games and game psychology, when something isn't challenging, motivation drops. When something is too difficult, motivation also drops. When something is too easy, motivation drops. There's a zone of, of challenge where things are motivating and they feel exciting. So striving towards a meaningful goal, being challenged with people I love. And I think if, if you take that last point away, again, the science is pretty clear. If you have a great job, but you're working with assholes, again, you won't be excited and you won't be happy. So those are the four principles for me. And in everything I'm doing, that's what I'm trying to, trying to cultivate and trying to get the balance right. Because when I was, uh, had that sort of toxic obsession with money and material things, I didn't get the balance right. And I sacrificed all of the material things for friendships. And I became immensely lonely. I remember the weekends of going to the office and just this feeling, this empty feeling inside of me because I'd sacrificed everything to try and become this happy, sexy millionaire. And it's, I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't have friends, to be honest. In fact, my business partner became an alcoholic, and he's very open about that. And my other partner ended up in hospital having severe panic attacks because we had all decided that becoming a hustle porn star was the way forward in life. And we, it, it, it had all failed us. And in chapter 10 of my book, I talk about that's why I started what I call the journey back to being a human which is trying to rebalance my life and reorientate it towards these very Maslowian things that are very, very simple, that we seem to, because of advertising and media and social media, we seem to deprioritize. So those are the things that make me excited these days. But the thing is, we all need to, and I'm saying this for myself deeply, need to know that we are enough right now, sat here with our 
flaws, bad habits, whatever we've got going on, that we are enough. And I think that that's my massive takeaway from following the work that you've been doing, listening to your podcast, talking to you today, that we need to just keep going back to that, that we are enough. Amen. 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 Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Stephen... Thank you so much for your time today. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you being here and just your support in general. It means the absolute world. So please, everybody, give it up for Stephen Bartlett. Thank you Bartlett. so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You are enough. Oh, my God. I've actually got that on a jumper somewhere because I need to read it a lot. It's a really simple takeaway from that chat but probably one of the hardest for us to get our heads around we need to keep repeating it and remembering it every single one of us thank you so much to Stephen for seriously lighting up that stage in Chiswick now normally at this point I say we'll chat again in a week's time but there's going to be another brand new episode for you from our London Happy Place Festival tomorrow. What a treat. I hope you listen to it. Until then, thank you again to Stephen, to the producer Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio and the biggest thanks to you lovely lot for sharing all of this with us. I'll chat soon. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.